Good morning, folks. It's lovely to be back with you. It's not nearly as scary as your Sunday school uh, service pre-Christmas, so I'm delighted to be back in uh, on ground that I feel relatively comfortable in. Uh, I had thought to open up God's Word um, and continue this series of studies on James, but through the week I, I, I feel that I felt that I got a nudge from God that I should do something different. So um, I, I bring this to you, um, and I, I hope that there will be something in it for you. You might like to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we're going to read. Uh, a little section uh, from the Upper Room Discourse. In chapter 17, Jesus uh, prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers. So, John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Well, we pray that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. What I want to try to do this morning is from the vantage point of 30 something years of ministries kind of to look back and to uh, just turn over stuff in my or share stuff with you that has been part of my own journey and I, and I hope that it'll be helpful for you um, I, I guess that this is the second Sunday of the new year but it's really good to mark the beginning of a year w- with something that by God's grace, might stick with us for the whole year and uh, just impact all that we do and think about. Well, one of the things that, that has puzzled me over the years is this. Why is the church we preach about so different from the church we preach to? Well, why is it like that? It, the church we preach about seems to be very different from the church we preach to. Well, when I began to think about that as a question, I naturally turned to the Acts of the Apostles because it's there that we discover how the church began to grow. Well, Christianity, you learn early in the Acts, had uh, spread south to Ethiopia. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip shares with them. The Ethiopian eunuch had gone to discover something about God in Jerusalem, but he couldn't find God in Jerusalem. 
and it was only when on the road home to Gaza that he met Philip that that he began to understand something of the grace of God and he took the gospel we believe back to Ethiopia and then the gospel went north to Damascus and uh, to Samaria and now it goes west Uh, to the coast of the Mediterranean. Moreover, Paul had gone to Turkey, and we can be very sure that when Paul was in Turkey, that the one thing he did was to share his faith wherever he went, because Paul was given to gossiping the gospel. That's what, what he did. Well, why was this happening? Well, we are told that, that we are the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being uh, saved. And if you like, the, the, the top was taken out of the bottle of perfume and, and the scent was spreading. Now I can't remember if I have ever told you before of a time I had visiting uh, a fragrance, uh, a factory in Ireland called International Flavors and Fragrances. They had a, a problem and, and I was sent up, dispatched up from my office to go and uh, see if I could sort it out. And I drove up to the town of Drogheda. I'd, I'd been through Drogheda once or twice before, but I didn't really know much about Drogheda. But I found out where the industrial estate was and I... I drove into the estate and there was a big uh, notice with all of the companies in the estate and I was looking for international flavors and fragrances. At that, a guy on a bicycle rode past. So I quickly ran down the wind and I said, excuse me, excuse me, can you help me, sir? And he came over and I said, I'm looking for the international flavors and fragrance factory. And he looked at me, started laughing, he said, follow your nose. So I did. I followed my nose and I went right to the factory. There was this wonderful fragrance. Well, I, I got out of the car and I went in and I, the nice lady was there in the receptionist. So I said, it must be wonderful to work with such a beautiful aroma. And she looked at me and said, what, what aroma? She was so used to it. Well, I went in and I walked around the factory and I did what I was supposed to do. I was wearing some leather sole shoes, which are a little bit absorbent for moisture. And anyway, on the way back home to my office in, in Dublin, I stopped to get a, an apple or a bar of chocolate or something. And as I went into the garage, I, there was a queue at the till. And there's an, a lady in front of me, an elderly lady. And all of a sudden she went... And turned around and looked at me up and down because she could smell this fragrance, which I wasn't aware of because it kind of clung to me. And then about six weeks later, my darling mum asked me, could I give her a lift down to our local town? And I did. And I happened to be wearing the same shoes. And I had the heater on. It was blowing air, warm air up around our legs. And my mum said, that's just the most wonderful aroma. Uh, it was an aroma that lingered. And this, the aroma, the beauty of Christ, lingers with God's people. And that's what was happening as the gospel was being spread all over the place. Well, in chapter 9, we find Peter moving out from Jerusalem. And he goes to Lydda, and he meets a, meets a man called Aeneas, who'd been in bed, uh, bedridden for eight years. And he heals him. And it's just amazing. And, and then there's some folks in Joppa 
And there's a lovely lady there called Dorcas, or Tabitha, she's sometimes called, and she always was going around doing good, but she became ill and died. So the people were really upset, so they sent a message to Peter, can you come and help? So Peter goes to the house, and oh, they're all so upset, this lovely lady is dead, and the people were showing uh, articles of clothing that she had made for them. And uh, Peter hooshes them all out of the room, and then he says, in Jesus' name, get up, and she, she comes to life again. And he goes and he, he presents her to her friends. And the folks are absolutely amazed because she had been dead. There's no doubt about it, she'd been absolutely dead. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord because God had done a real miracle through uh, Peter. It was an absolutely marvelous time. Now one of the things that we know that at that time the gospel had only really been preached to the Jews. But that wasn't God's heart, because God's heart is for all people. Do you remember when the news of the birth of the Savior was announced? It was announced to the shepherds, and they were almost certainly Jews. But it was also announced to the Magi, the wise men from the East. So God was sharing this news not only with the Jews, but with the Gentiles, because God wants everybody to know about him. In fact, I don't know how good you are at uh, knowing about the temple, but if you look there at the temple, you'll see the the very... It doesn't work on the screen, but you'll see the... the, uh, the design of the temple and you've got the court of the priests and you hope you can see it there but what's the outer court called? It's called the court of the Gentiles. That was not that amazing? All those years ago earlier when God gave the design of the temple he had it in mind that there would be a court of the Gentiles because he wanted non-Jews to be able to come and observe albeit from a distance. The whole principle of, of substitutionary atonement, of an offering for sin. So it was always God's heart that uh, the Gentiles would know. Now, Joppa was a place where the Gentiles lived. And ordinarily, Peter would have tried to avoid Joppa because he was a Jew. And Jews didn't mix with Gentiles. They would have felt contaminated by being there. But God was working in his heart to soften him. And the last verse of Acts 9 is very short, and you can read it and skip over it without understanding its significance. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, you need to understand that ordinarily... Peter would have had nothing to do with a Gentile because the Gentile was deemed to be unclean. But the tanner was deemed to be even more unclean because the Jews viewed the tanner as so unclean by virtue of his occupation that he wasn't allowed to live within the boundary of any town. He had to have a a house that was no nearer than 22 cubits outside the boundary of the town. And in fact, 
in that day, if a young girl was betrothed to a man and uh, decided that she didn't want to go through with the wedding, she would have to get a certificate of divorce. And there was one exception to that. If she discovered her intended was a tanner, she didn't need the certificate of divorce, divorce because the tanner was unclean all the time. Well, now, I once went to a tannery in Dublin on business, and I have to tell you, I was gagging because the stink was so awful. It was crawling down my throat. It made me feel absolutely unwell. It was horrible. Well, somehow Paul met this tanner. And we think that this tanner loved Jesus. And so he possibly asked, Peter, would you like to come and stay with me? And Peter did what others thought was absolutely unthinkable. He, he took a step and he went to stay with a tanner. Now, that was an extraordinary thing to do. He did the unthinkable. Now, it's true that we have our traditions, which for the most part have been a tremendous blessing to us. And yet sometimes those traditions can cause us a huge big problem. Now, let me illustrate that, give you a biblical example, because it's really important that we're not sharing opinions here. We're just sharing from the word. Do you remember when God's people were being delivered from slavery in Egypt? That's what God does. He delivers us from slavery. Well, they were a bit like us in that they were a bit awkward and angular. And they were given to complaining against God. In fact, God was very, very patient with them. But sometimes God had had enough. And on one occasion, God sent snakes and the snakes began to bite the people who were complaining. And do you remember what happened? Moses prayed. And uh, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who was bitten can look at it and live. And that's what Moses did. And folks who looked at the snake, this uh, serpent of bronze, lo looked at it. Was, was healed, which was just amazing. And there's a lovely parallel to the New Testament looking at Jesus. Look at the snake and live. Look, we're not going to go there because that's just too exciting. It would take us too long to, to talk about that. Anyway, do you know what happened to the snake? I mean, it must have been amazing. It had been such a blessing to the people. What did they do with it? Well, it's very interesting, because if you read on, in King Hezekiah's day, they had been polishing it. And it says that Hezekiah broke it, broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. That which had been sent to them as a blessing became a snare to them. And they began to worship it and got the old brass eyes and polished it up weekly or whatever. Terrible. Now, I think that we need to recognize that we have our traditions which we hold on to tightly. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Somebody has said that sacred cows make the tenderest beef burgers. And we do have sacred cows in our churches. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3.20. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now if you stop and think about it, that means that God does more than we imagine he's able to do or willing to do. To use a good Glasgow expression, that means that God works out with or beyond our imaginations. And that means that sometimes God does stuff that I don't think he should do. Because he works beyond my imagination. But isn't that his right? Because he's God. And I'm so grateful that God is not confined to working within the limits of my imagination. Well, there's a key text that is really important for, I think, every church. But for you guys, as you step into this new year, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we know that we're to do good works. There's no, no doubt about that. But it also says that God has prepared these good works in advance for us to do. So the question I ask you very simply is this. How do you know you're doing the stuff that God has prepared for you to do? There's a million things you could do, isn't there? But I don't think it's physically possible for you to do a million things. So what are the things that God wants you to do? What are the priorities for the year ahead? Now clearly God has an agenda for the church. And it's more important that we find his agenda than it is we find our own agendas. Isn't that right? Well, the Christian life has been pictured as a journey through a world that is constantly changing. And our tendency, quite frankly, is to set up camp where we are comfortable, where we can look back and enjoy past blessings. Because we were like... The children of Israel, when they were being delivered from Egypt, they set up camp and they liked to stay there. So they could look back thinking, was it wonderful the way the Lord brought us through the Red Sea? Amazing! But all the time God was wanting them to go on because he had a promised land he was wanting to bring them to. And it's so possible for us to sit back and enjoy the blessings that we have experienced. But remember when Jesus called Peter... The first three words he said were, come, follow me. And the word follow implies movement. Isn't that right? In other words, if we step up for Christ and stay still and Jesus is moving and he says, follow. If we don't follow, there's going to be a big gap open up between us and him. So movement is implied. And God has in his wisdom, placed us exactly where he wants us to be. And we know that we are to live and serve and witness in a world that is contaminated. But we have to live and work and witness in a world without being contaminated. And if we are to do that, we shall have to understand what exactly it is that God wants us to be. 
Now John Stott said, if a church doesn't understand its mission, it will end up serving its structures. If a church doesn't understand its mission, its priorities, then it will end up serving its structures. Now I know, and I think you'll agree with me, that in this land of Scotland, there are very many sick churches. Sick because they don't understand who they are and what they are called to be. And that brings us to Jesus' prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message. So who is Jesus praying for? My prayer is for those who will believe. So isn't Jesus, was he not praying for us? He was praying for us. And I find it fascinating to think about what he prays for us. He doesn't pray about the quality of our worship, and he could have prayed about that. Neither does he pray about the caliber of our evangelism. He doesn't pray about that. He actually makes just one request of two parts, which he repeats. Now when God repeats something in scripture, it's not because he has an intellectual stutter. It's because he wants us especially to take note of it. Could it be that he wants us to grab hold of the importance of what he's saying so as not to miss the emphasis? Now remember before he prays this request for the church of the future, he says, as you, Father, sent me into the world... I have sent them, sent them into the world. So you and I, we are a sent people. If we know Jesus, we are sent into the world. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus has sent us into the world. I have sent them into the world. Well, he goes on and he tells us what this request is. John 17, verse 21b. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, it's really interesting. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me then the world will know that you have sent me. Believe and know. There's a progression there, isn't there? Now the word mission comes from a Latin verb meaning to send or dispatch. So God is sending us into the world with good news. People need to know. God has given us the authority to preach the gospel. The problem is that the folks around don't know that we have the authority to preach the gospel. So they don't think that they need to listen. But they do need to listen. The reality is that you and I, while we have the right to preach the gospel, we have to earn a hearing. How do we earn 
a hearing. Well, we earn a hearing by the way in which we live. And it's a rather sad thing to say that the church hasn't always had good press. And it is true that people won't care what we know until they know that we care. People won't care what we know until they know that we care. So let's just pause for a moment and ask a question or two. Is the church in reality organized only for itself and its own survival and convenience and for the preservation of its own privileges? Is it organized to serve itself or to serve God and the community? What are its cherished traditions and conventions which are necessarily separated from the community? Now I've kind of phrased that in a way that it applies to the whole church, not just Moody'sburg. But the question is still valid. What, are, is this, are you guys organized for your own benefit or for the benefit of the folks who don't come? It's a really interesting question to ask, isn't it? How does the building look to outsiders? Now, some churches look very cold and very forbidding. And uh, if you go to some churches and you want to go to the bathroom, well, you don't know where to go, so because there's no signs and you, you're a bit reluctant to ask anybody. Uh, what about the services and the way they're structured? Do they make folks feel at home? Now, you've all been into the into churches where uh, the, the fellow who's leading it says we're going to stand and sing so you're new to the church so you stand up and everybody knows that the intro's got to be played first so the, the visitor stands up and then suddenly thinks oh my word I'm the only one standing so they go down as everybody else goes up now, I, I learned that years ago in Finley so I used to say we're going to stand and sing to get everybody, just so that folks didn't feel awkward. Because when you're standing there looking around and you're the only one, oh man, it's awful. And then it gets worse because you're going down, everybody's going up. Do the structures promote growth? Or are they growth inhibitors? Now the Apostle Paul is very direct when he talks about his priorities. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. And then he tells us how he does that. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share its blessings. Now isn't that interesting? So that by all possible means I might save some. Well, we, don't, we know that we don't save some. Many years ago I, I read this and I used to go to work on the train into Dublin. There was a guy on the train and he was deaf and, and, and meat. He couldn't speak. So I learned how to do sign language so I could witness to him on the train. Uh, I still remember A, E, I, O and U. 
In fact, I used to use two hands. And when I got to the north of Ireland to college, somebody told me I was speaking with, a, with an Irish accent because I used two hands instead of one. But by all means, by all means, some shall be saved. Now, why do we do this? For the sake of the gospel. For the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is willing to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. So the question is, what about us? They say that when the devil was kicked out of heaven, he landed in the choir stalls. And music has been a bone of contention down through the centuries, hasn't it? I remember when I went to Finlay in the city, it was just mainly older people. And then God in his mercy began to move and we we had a whole heap of young folks come in, which was just great. And I remember thinking that some of the dear old folks, we weren't going to sing hymns that they were used to. So I remember going to one old lady called Mary, and I said, Mary, we haven't been singing from Sankey's Sacred Songs and Solos for a little while. I'm conscious that that maybe there are some ones that you really love, so if you'd like to give me a list of them, maybe we can have a Sankey service where we... And she said, no, Pastor, she said, I've had my day. I've been praying that God would work, and God is working, and I just want you to... Keep doing what you're doing for these young folks. Because it might not be my taste, but I'm not... Uh, do you know, I was so blessed by that. And about 10, 12 years later, the music scene was moving on. And I'm totally a Philistine when it comes to music, but, but the music was moving on. And there were some folks humping and grumping. And it wasn't the elder generation. It was my generation. And I had to go and grab one lady one day. And I said, you need to go and apologize for your outburst to this musician. It was a youngster. And the youngster dealt with it so graciously. And this old lady looked as though she'd been baptized in lemon juice. And I had to go tell her, you need to apologize. How awful. You see, the truth is, it's not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's about God. It's about his gospel. And it's about kingdom building. And some people fall out over these issues. And when that happens, the testimony is damaged. And James says, what causes fights among you and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And isn't that true? But we're supposed to be doing stuff that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So it's about his agenda. It's not about our agenda. How important it is that we get to understand that. John Stott wrote in The Radical Disciple of a Hindu professor identifying one of his students as a Christian. And this Hindu professor said, If you Christians lived like Jesus Christ, India would be at your feet tomorrow. And there's a, another example is a, 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 a converted Muslim, a man called Iskandar Jadid, a former Arab Muslim who said, if all Christians were Christians, there would be no more Islam in the world today. And you think of the asylum seekers coming into what they think is a Christian country. And they see the advertising and the, on the television and on the hoardings. And they see the way people behave in the centre of Glasgow on a Friday night. And in fact, I think it's just about any night now. 
And they think that represents Christianity. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Is it any wonder that they're confused? We are to be a people who are committed to making the love and loveliness of Christ visible. That's what we are taught. That is our mission. Well, not only does Jesus give us the mission, he gives us the method of the mission or the means by which the mission is to be fulfilled. Look what he says. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now please understand that in the early days of the church there was great growth but little organizational unity. And as the years passed, there grew organizational unity. And perhaps it might be argued that the growth slowed down. And today there's a great deal of confusion. Did you know, and I say this without any kind of, I'm just making an observation, that there's ten different denominations of Presbyterianism. I tell you, I think the Lord looks down and he weeps. Now let's personalize this. Jesus prayed for unity, not uniformity. And if any of you ever were to think, oh, I'd like to be like Michael, I'd be saying, for goodness sake, don't try to be like Michael. Try to be better than Michael. And that means... That we don't all have to be the same. There are folks who love Jesus who have a different view of baptism to the view that I have. There are folks who love Jesus more than I do who have a different view to the role of the Holy Spirit than I have. But these things are not supposed to divide us because we're supposed to be united. That's the way that the mission can be fulfilled. So Jesus prayed for Unity and not uniformity. Remember that some of the Psalms are, Psalm 119 has 176 verses and Psalm 117 has two verses. So it's okay sometimes to be long and other times to be short and brief. Some of the Psalms are pensive and reflective. And some of them are so exuberant that you kind of want to get up and dance. But that's okay too. We find, we find both. So don't tell me that it's wrong to dance. And don't tell me that it's wrong to be pensive and reflective. Because there's room for both, isn't there? Francis Schaeffer said, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And that's our big problem in Scotland, isn't it? We are divided. Now the secret to unity is simply coming as close to the Lord as we can. Now let me illustrate that for you in a way that I hope you'll be able to remember. So there you have Christ, the cross, and there you have Alice, 
right? You have Alice. And near Alice is Bernard. He's not too close to Alice because actually he doesn't like Alice very much. You know? Alice is a, just a bit different. And Bernard, well, he, he doesn't like her terribly much, but then he doesn't really like Charles a whole lot either. And Alice, as for, for Alice, Charles is, she doesn't really want anything to do with him. So we have Alice, we have Bernard, we have Charles, and we have Daphne. And Daphne and Alice don't get on at all, you know, because they, they, they criticise each other's fashion, sense of fashion and taste and all of that. And if it comes to church, oh man, you'll not see them sitting together. So they're all just kind of isolated and separate. Some are more separated than others. But what happens when they move close to Christ? Well, all of a sudden, in moving close to Christ, you see what's happening. They're coming close to each other, aren't they? And if you and I come close to Christ, we'll be closer to each other. And that's, that's what brings unity. The Bible is packed with instructions with regard to unity. Hebrews 12 verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness no one will see the Lord. It says make every effort and I've deliberately put up an arm that is covered in perspiration because that's really what's involved sometimes in every effort. Make every effort. The poet said to live above with saints we love oh my that will be glory. To live below with saints we know well that's another story. And it is, isn't it? The authorised version talks about God's peculiar people. And some of them, in my experience, really are peculiar. But then God, I think, has the really peculiar ones fairly evenly distributed amongst the churches. Why? To keep us humble and trusting. I'm not looking, I don't know you guys, so I can say these things, get away with them, I hope. Don't be awkward. You may have particular views that not everybody else holds, and that's, that's possibly okay, I don't know. Depends on the views. But don't let them ever become a test of fellowship. Because we're supposed to love Jesus, and the closer we come to him, the closer we shall be to one another. Jesus prayed that our unity would make Christ visible. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And I have sometimes wondered if the best kept secret in the Bible is found in John 13 verse 35. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now Jesus says that it is a mark it is a mark by which his disciples are to be known as Christians not only to him or to, to one another but to everyone and Francis Schaeffer commenting on this says that this is frightening and he's right for it is as if Jesus turns to the world and says I have something to say to you on the basis of my authority I give you a right you may judge whether or not 
an individual as a Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love towards other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative that Jesus gave them. And we mustn't get angry if people say, you don't love other Christians. We must go home. We must get down on our knees and ask God whether or not they are right. And if they are, then they have a right to have said what they've said. And if that happens, we need to pray for the Spirit of God to work in our own hearts. What kind of love must we show if the world is to look at it and conclude that it is explainable only by the fact that we are Christians? It has to be a very special kind of love. It has to be a love that only comes from God. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Every adult Christian generation owes its young people a demonstration of what it believes and what it preaches. So I just wonder, as we've thought about some, some of these things, I wonder what the traditions are in this church. I wonder, do you have any sacred cows that might just be hindering you in some way from picking up, picking up your responsibility in the community roundabout? I don't, I don't know you well enough to know, so I can't say. But the Holy Spirit can say. And then the other thing is, what if the Lord was to ask you to do something that you would never imagine doing? Same as Peter when he went to stay in the house of Simon the Tanner. What if God said, I want you to do something that's really outlandish, and you think, Lord, are you serious? What will your response be? Well, I pray that whatever you feel is asking you to do, that you would filter it through the mission that he's given you and the method of the mission, which is unity, and then with his help, do it with all of your heart. We pray for you. Father, thank you so much that we've been able to spend a little time thinking about your truth. I just want to pray for the church family here. Thank you, O oh Lord, for every individual who's part of that church family, this church family. I pray particularly, O oh Lord, for those who um, have, have struggles of one kind or another. Would, would you gently draw alongside them and minister to them? For those who've got uh, fears about the future, or struggling with health issues, or struggling with relationships, with those who find themselves not on the warmest of terms with others in the church, perhaps because something has been said or something hasn't been said. You know all of those things, Lord. And we just want to pray, Father, that in your own gentle and gracious way, you would draw alongside us and help us, O oh Lord, that we might be serious about our faith and about you, Lord, and about loving you and about living 
so that with the help of your spirit we're making the loveliness of Christ visible that the aroma of Christ that wonderful fragrance of which the folks in the Lewis revival speak about that that might be about this place and about your people here and may it be that that fragrance would waft out of this building into our homes and out of our homes and into our neighbors' homes and that you would give us a holy boldness so that in conversation we might be inviting our friends why don't you come and just see what it's like please Lord pour out your grace may this year 2020 be the best yet for this church family for the glory of your name Amen.